History. History. Through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes. Presented on the air and online by Provident Payments. Proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler. Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. We've learned they don't have to go untold as long as we're willing to ask a few questions and invest a little time into listening as stories from long, long ago take on new meaning in the here and now. We want to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice. We want to preserve their stories so we never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And as we proceed down that path, so often we find ourselves inspired by our men and women in uniform. The 94-year-old we get to visit with today has a special connection to a very unique chapter of history that we don't always hear too much about. It's going to be fascinating to explore with 94-year-old Tad Riley of Fairfield, California, a retired Navy pilot whose highest decorations came not from bombs dropped or guns fired, but from some famous photographs he snapped from his RF-8A in October. 1962. We'll get to all of that, but as always, we prefer to go back to the beginning. You've lived quite a few places, Tad, but where'd you grow up? Started out in Kansas when I was just a little kid in a little Kansas town, and then we moved back to Pennsylvania, and I did the usual things. I went out for sports, but I was never big enough to do much. When you say, you know, you moved to Pennsylvania, I've talked to a lot of World War II veterans who were a few years older than you, not too much older than you, but they were in Oklahoma, Nebraska, Kansas, and they had to move because of the Dust Bowl. And, and that's what forced your family to abandon that area? Yeah, basically, the fact that probably killed my father eventually. He had bronchitis forever. And uh, he died, he was only 51, so that was a little, a little premature, but he got, had to get out of the dust. Well, and what was that like for you as a, a six-year-old to have your life altered in such a significant way? Well, I knew for uh, when I was younger, when say four or five years old, I I couldn't go more than ten yards from the back porch, because these storms you never got any warning on them, and uh, my mother there was she could look out the window in the kitchen and get me in, and you would have to get out, close up the house, and I didn't. And one time I went to grade kindergarten just a block from home, and I had to spend the night. They wouldn't let us go home. A storm hit, and we, they had blankets and things. We all slip on the floor. Yeah, most of us can't even imagine a scenario like that. Another thing that comes to mind, since I know you're an extremely accomplished pilot and you've flown all kinds of different aircraft, do you go back to childhood to a moment where kind of that aviation bug was sparked for you? Oh yeah, there there used to be. Uh, they weren't crop dusters, but bum pilots coming through with. I guess they were Jennies, and we. My father was always interested in aviation, so we whenever whenever there was an airport, we were near it. The old barnstormers. Yeah, I guess that's it. I remember they had a, a red Ford trimotor, and they'd land it out in a pasture and give rides. So, how old were you? You think the first time you went up in an airplane? Oh, I didn't go up. I was probably 12, 14. It was in a Fairchild, Atlanta, 
municipal. Went around about a 20-minute ride. Were you hooked right there and then? Well, I'd already been hooked. I've been always making models, and so I've been hooked all the way. That's what got me in the Navy. Well, I want to hear about that, but I'm also interested in this life as the son of a football coach. I guess your dad was quite the football coach? Yeah, but I only weighed about 120 pounds, so I wasn't... (laughs) He didn't have to worry about playing me whether I could or not. Uh I was a pretty good runner for sprints and track, but I was on the traveling team, but I was never on the first team. <laughs> but you told me your your father was the coach at Fort Hayes State there in Kansas, and he actually beat Oklahoma A&M, which is now Oklahoma State. I won't say it was, a, it was one of the Oklahoma schools, you know, just like now the big schemes schedule some little team to practice on in the beginning of the year, and much to everybody's amazement, Fort Hayes beat him. That got him a good job in the East. Which led to you uh, being a, a high school friend of a, a name that football fans might recognize. Lamar Hunt. He was a classmate of mine in prep school. Did you have any inclination that he may be a pro football Hall of Famer and, and own the Kansas City Chiefs and all of that? No, not at that time. That came along later. He wasn't very big, so he was kind of handicapped like I was when it came to playing himself. What kind of guy was he way back then? He was just a good old boy. You wouldn't know you he could buy and sell half the country at the time. <laughs> Did that make you a Chiefs fan? Well, that was before the Chiefs came along, and I was in the Navy when that came along, so I never, I didn't really get interested until after I got out. Yeah, I was just curious if that connection made you pull for them as opposed to another team. I always root for them now. And, of course, I had a Kansas background. Of course, they were more Missouri than they are Kansas City, I think. But Well, and, you know, something else happened during these growing up years. So you've been exposed to aviation. You're dreaming about being a pilot. But you weren't too old when the world changed a little bit. Anytime I meet someone who was alive during World War II, I'm, I'm curious to know December 7th, 1941. If you have a memory of how you found out what happened out at Pearl Harbor. Well, I was at a friend's house and we were playing touch football in the backyard. And I was 11 years old and his mother came out and said Pearl Harbor had been bombed by the Japanese. No one knew where it was. Literally, we had no idea where Pearl Harbor was. And at that time you are in Pennsylvania? Yes, in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. So did you see your hometown changing after that, during those war years? What did you observe? Well, my father went, the, the Navy hired a lot of coaches to uh, get uh, uh, aviation cadets up physically qualified. And uh, so he was, in a year after Pearl Harbor, it was the next Christmas, he was uh, sent to the Georgia Preflight School. And he was on the football staff there with a, a lot of, they were, all football coaches were in, the, in these pre-flight schools at that time. Yeah, those were some of the best football teams in the country during that area were the military teams. Well, there's Matty Bell. He had a SMU. SMU was a big power then. It's not now, but, and uh, Bernie Behrman and people like that, we'd have them in the house for dinner. So... Were you starting to think that the military may be in your future, or are there some other things that you remember about those World War II years and how you experienced it? Well, then later he was stationed at a little uh, air station in Florida, uh, Melbourne, Florida, and it was a substation from, from Banana River Naval Air Station, which is now Kennedy. At that time it was a PBM base. Now this is where they launched the uh, the space shuttle or all the, the rockets and all that? Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's all. At that time, it was little Navy fields. 
up and down the Florida coast. Well, so you were kind of marinating in naval aviation then, huh? Yeah, he was stationed at a F-6F Hellcat night fighter training base, and so that was right. That was right at the end of the war. And do you remember that being a big deal when the war ended, and and what that meant for? You and the rest of the country? Yeah, he gave me the keys of the car and said, take it down and fill it up. <laughs> we hadn't done that for four years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's something I spend so much time talking to guys who were fighting in World War II. Sometimes we forget about what it was like on the home front. Were there things that you had to, to do without or sacrifice because you knew what was going on? Well, I don't think so. But you, uh, For instance, you, you, when you finish your toothpaste, they were in tinfoil, and you had to turn in an empty one to get a full one <laughs> and that sort of thing. And, uh, of course, uh, we, I, I think we had an aid sticker for uh, rationing for gas for the car, and that, I think it was two gallons a week or two gallons a month maybe because we had a stick that we could mark and put down in the gas tank and see if there's enough to go to church. <laughs> if it got wet, we could go to church. <laughs> see, this is the perspective that we wouldn't have without you telling us something like that. So VJ Day happens, and he says, hey, we're living high on the hog. Go fill her up. That's about it. And then you could just go down and buy things. All of a sudden, you could buy anything you wanted to, but it was always meat rationing and butter and that sort of thing. You could always get chicken and, and fish if there was fish available, but you had to be, there was nothing frozen. There's no such thing as frozen food, so it was all seasonal, and you, you never saw some of those foods except during the season. I guess I ought to ask, too, did you have any friends or family members who were serving in the war or that you were writing letters to or praying for or thinking about? Well, I had an uncle that was in the Army, and uh, he was enlisted, but he, went, he, he was in D-Day plus three, and he walked all the way to Berlin. And uh, he ended up first lieutenant. He had a battlefield promotion. He brought me a, a little Luger, <laughs> which somebody stole. <laughs> you just answered my next question. Do you still have it? Nope, somebody else pocketed that. So how about you? How did you become a Navy man? Well, my father was in during the war, and in my generation, uh, the draft, everybody was, you wanted to pick your poison, and uh, I looked better in blue. <laughs> so how old were you when you enlisted? Well, I guess, well, when I went to college, I was, what, 18, I guess. So you did uh, ROTC, and where was that? At University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. That was when it was a football powerhouse. We had Charlie Justice, True True Justice. Long before uh, Dean Smith, huh? Yeah, uh, Snavely was a coach in those days. And you already had it in mind that you were going to be a naval aviator? Well, I always wanted to fly, and that was the best way to do it. I, I was never interested in the airlines. My experience with, through my father was that they were carrier airplanes, and that's why I wanted to fly off a carrier. And while you're in college, if I'm doing the math, while you're there at the University of North Carolina, all of a sudden this war breaks out in Korea. Did that change things for you at all or, or heighten your sense of urgency? Well, a little bit. That started in the summer and we were on, uh, we always had to go on active duty in the summer and I was at the fifth, uh, amphib base in Virginia and they called us in and said, don't make any long plans. You may not be going back to school. That got, that got our attention. But as it turned out, we just finished and went on our way. It didn't really affect us. And the timing of that worked out all right for you, huh? Right about when you wrapped up school, that war was paused? Well, no, the war was going on. 
And uh, I had the, I was graduating, and I had orders on a, on, a, on a transport ship to go to Thule, Greenland. They were building a, a, a base up there, and it was going to be a barrack ship for heavy equipment operators. And I, that didn't sound too exciting. <laughs> and they were at that time we had to serve two years active duty before we could apply for flight training. Well, they called me in and said, "Well, we we need more." students and you we have an opening in Pensacola now well it was in the fall that was the hard decision to make whether to go to Greenland or to Florida <laughs> so, so I went to Florida and went through flight training and that took about 18 months and the war was over so the first Navy aircraft that you got to fly in what was that SNJ Air Force called them AT6s it was a tail dragger prop and no power, and a big cockpit, and I was little. That was always a problem, reaching the pedals and so forth. You had to wear special uh, pillows in the back to get you up where you could see. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was the first one. How many military aircraft did you end up flying in your career? Oh, 18 or 20, I guess. I've never counted them. Before I got out, I had an opportunity. I was in a ferry squadron. You were supposed to be able to be qualified in six different kinds. And I was qualified to, to ferry uh, 10 airplanes. And that means uh, I didn't have to operate everything. All I had to do was be able to take off and deliver it someplace. So uh, I got to fly a lot of things, including helicopters, that way. I never really operated helicopters. I just flew them cross country. But that's always a thrill. That was one of my top moments going coast to coast in a helicopter. That's 200 miles at a piece. (laughs) Yeah, not too many people have done that. And uh, I guess, I don't know if you can choose a favorite, but I I can't help but ask if you've flown that many different aircraft, fixed wing and, you know, rotating, is there one that you just really loved flying? Well, the Crusader. That was uh, the hot rod, and it could do everything faster and longer than anything else. At the time, it's pretty tame now, but uh, at the time it was the hottest thing going. It's time for our first break, but when we come back, we'll hear about some of Tad Riley's adventures in the cockpit of his RF-8 Crusader, including a run-in with a couple of MiGs and the role he and his unit played in preventing World War III more than 60 years ago. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. Hey, do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for way too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I got to tell you, when it comes to your money, I think I've found a better way with EECU. Just take a look at myeecu.org and I think you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a not-for-profit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Over 350,000 members now in 12 different California counties and access to more than 30,000 co-op ATMs and free online and mobile banking. But what I love most is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. A decade ago, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. By the end of this year, more than 1,800 veterans will have seen their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement that EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's 1-800-538-3328. 
proudly presented by Provident Payments. This is Hometown Heroes, celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and our visit with 94-year-old Tad Riley, a longtime pilot who grew up in Kansas and Pennsylvania. Tad and his wife of 67 years, Phyllis, have spent their last 11 years at Paradise Valley Estates in Fairfield, California, where most of his fellow military retirees served in the Air Force. Travis Air Force Base is right down the street, but Tad spent a quarter century flying in the Navy. Between propeller-driven planes and jets and helicopters, close to 20 different aircraft he's flown. You can see some photos of many of them at hometownheroesradio.com or the Hometown Heroes page on Facebook. We're going to hear about the famous photos he took in a photo-recon-configured RF-8A Crusader in a while, but... You were in the Navy for the transition from that propeller-driven era to jet engines. So can you give us a little perspective on how significant of a difference that was? Well, the main difference is you're going faster all the time, but uh, jets are just the mechanics of driving them are simpler than a prop. There are a lot of things you have to do with a big propeller airplane with temperatures and thrust and pressures. A jet turbine, it runs or it doesn't. <laughs> And so if you can start it, you can go. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and again, just another, and forgive me if some of these are dumb questions, but I, I have to think that if you flew that many different aircraft for that long, you probably had a few flights that didn't go as planned, where some curveballs were thrown your way, or you had to improvise, or maybe you weren't sure that you were going to make it to where you were going. Do you have some memories that stand out of uh, some hairy situations in the air? Well... I was stationed in Washington, and we we, uh, had to get proficiency time. And at that time, they had T1As, which was a Lockheed uh, trainer. And uh, I was giving an instrument check uh, on a fellow, and he was taking it from the back seat under under the hood, they called it. And uh, it flamed out just after the wheels were tracted. We were still over the runway, and so we walked home. But we had to eject through the canopy, and we were maybe 150 feet high when we did that. I ended up outside the main gate in a pigsty. I've spent some time in a farm when I was a kid, and I knew that pigs are carnivorous. They'll eat anything. And I was flat on my back in in this kind of little mud puddle next to a barn. I heard thundering hooves, and I looked up, and here came about 15 or 20 pigs. And I thought, after all this, I'm going to get eaten by a pig. It just turned out they were little pigs. They were maybe 10 pounds, and they're real curious animals. And they just gathered around, oinking, and their little tails were spinning like a propeller. And this is the most exciting thing they'd ever seen. (laughs) About that time, the the farmer showed up in a jeep and bundled me up, and we went through the base uh, gate at Andrews Air Force Base, and we met the crash trucks coming out as we went in. And the uh, the operations were dropped me off, and, and that was a madhouse. You know, this this plane hit on the freeway and blew up. They could see it from the White House, so I got my name in the paper. They didn't want to pay any attention to me because they had an accident, and they had more important things to do, and I had to convince them that I would bend with the accident. <laughs> and it, uh, it, I had a hand that was crushed in the process, and so I ended a couple of days in the hospital, but... I kept going. Well, a lot of things come to mind. First, I mean, I knew we were going to talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I didn't know you were going to teach me about the Chesapeake Bay of Pigs. Yeah. (laughs) 
Oh, they were kind of cute, but you know, when you're flat in your back and they're all standing around you, you got to wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> well, and the other thing, I mean, you described that whole sequence so matter of factly, but those of us who didn't live through it are listening and saying, holy moly, this is life and death. This has got to be incredibly scary. What goes through your mind in those moments where you have to make the split second decision to eject? I don't remember the weather. That's when you went go into automatic. We were trained, and there there wasn't any decision to make. You just had to go, and that's what we did. He uh, got tangled up in a tree, and by the time he uh, fell out of the tree, he broke his ankle. So he was in worse shape than I was. Were you married already at this time? Oh, yeah. And I had to call the wife and tell her to turn on the TV. That's all they talked about for a while. The plane that landed on the freeway? Yeah. And fortunately, uh, the chute pie opened when it was 100 feet, so I wasn't very, I only swung back and forth once. Never, I never even looked up to see if it worked. I knew it had. I remember seeing a school bus on the, on the freeway, but it got through before the plane hit. And the plane hit in the open between traffic. Almost got two guys in a jeep. They, they tried to back up and couldn't get it in gear. But otherwise, uh, they had a little burn, but not much. I think a car burned up, but they got out. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking about it. This sounds like every pilot's nightmare, and, and you had to, to live through it, and, and you didn't know what the consequences were going to be, whether you were, I mean, because to eject at 150 feet, there's no guarantee you're going to survive, and you don't know what the plane's going to do. It's all so fast, and it's just two or three seconds and it's over and there you are. It's kind of like having a close one on the freeway. You don't live with it forever. You know that could have been a bad one real easy, Yeah. but it wasn't. So you got through it. So how'd you explain it to Phyllis? I told her I was okay. <laughs> so she needed to know. <laughs> Is that something, and I'm just thinking about that because, you know, so often we think about the person who's serving and, and we don't realize how much their family serves with them. Were there conversations that the two of you had over the years about the inherent risk to your duties? No, you, that, she's a Navy wife, and that's part of the package, and she knew that. I, was, and I, I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that I, I wasn't going to fly when I got married, and she knew it. Of course, I was. I had already been flying when we got married, so... Yeah, do you want to tell me the story of how you two met? Blind date. I needed a date to go to the squadron party, and a buddy of mine had a girlfriend that wanted, she was looking too. <laughs> <laughs> so it went from there. Uh-huh. Yeah. And how long you been married now? Uh, 67 years. So every time I meet someone who's been married that long, I, I know I'm not the only one who aspires to similar longevity. So what's your secret? <laughs> Just say yes, dear. And that's still working for you, huh? Better. <laughs> I don't want to leave anything out. So if there are other aviation stories you, you want to mix in, I'm sure you could tell us a ton of them. But there's a photograph you have here. There's a couple of them that are really unique. One of them's unique because it's the only time what happened in that photograph happened. And the other one is what created that one. So I want you to take us back to 1962. And a lot of people are familiar with the Cuban Missile Crisis in general, but maybe don't know the specifics of what was happening. Can you help us understand how how much tension existed in the world in that time between the United States and the USSR? Well, it was just uh, that's just the way it was. You you didn't realize you're 
there was a lot of tension, and at the time there was a lot of controversy about Cuba because of Castro had just came into power and was doing a lot of talking. And so you weren't surprised when things were, because some of the Cubans were coming across in little boats, and and they'd tell you things, or they'd tell you what you wanted to hear, usually. So there was always a certain amount of tension, and as far as the Navy on the East Coast was concerned, the, that was our ocean. <laughs> and, so, and, and, of course, we had the basic Guantanamo that we'd go back for training, and so this, this whole period came along pretty fast. The Cuban crisis started for me more than most, I guess, in August. The actual crisis was in October. But in August, my commanding officer called me in and asked me to study Cuba and how what our capability was of running missions in Cuba. And I remember the only thing I remember particularly, it was low-level, high-speed. And to let, not to discuss it with anybody else, destroy any paperwork I did. So I did, and I told him I was ready. I could give a briefing if it came to that, and that was in August. Then about the 18th or 19th of October, I was back driving out of the squadron parking lot going home, and he came out and flagged me down, told me to get to Washington as soon as possible. He gave me a phone number to call when I got there. He had already was getting a plane ready, and he had filed my flight plan. He said the weather's good, so it would just be a a visual flight rule. That was about really all he told me. And I remember I said, well, can I go supersonic? In those days, you, you couldn't fly over land supersonic. You could under certain circumstances above 20,000 feet. But I, the ceiling was 10. I figured, well, I, I can probably get to Washington and super, supersonic. <laughs> so I asked him, I said, you said, as soon as, I, as soon as I can. And he said, yes, as fast as you can get there, you get there. About an hour and a half later, I was in Andrews. It was kind of fun. <laughs> Kid in a candy store, huh? Yeah, but they were in the midst. There was a hurricane off in the Caribbean that was heading, and then those you always flew the planes someplace else, inland, get them out of the way. And they were getting ready to fly. They, the Navy had a couple hundred trainers and beachcrafts and T-28s and a few T-birds. They didn't want to pay any attention to me because they had a problem. So well, I called the wife from there. They wouldn't let me use the phone. I called my wife from the VIP lounge and got her into it. And finally, uh, I used the phone number they had given me, and I didn't know who I was talking to, but I, I said I was there. And this he ended up being a Navy captain someplace. He said, well, what's wrong? Can't you make it? And I said, I'm here. He said, what do you mean, here? And I said, I'm at Andrews. I was told to call you as soon as I got there. And I heard him cover the phone, and he, he told other people, hey, this guy's already here. <laughs> <laughs> well, get some transportation. Give me the duty officer. Well, I'd already been told that. I was an aggravation to him. and But he got on the phone, and he was... A little huffy about it, and the next thing I knew, he was yes sir, no yes sir, yes sir, yes sir. We'll do what you can. And then he came back and he said, uh, you, "You have to go out in the back door." And I said, "Back door of what?" He said, "The Pentagon." And he said, "We have to find some transportation. The only thing we have left is the maintenance pickup truck." <laughs> and I don't think we're allowed to take it off the base. <laughs> but anyway, that's what we did, and it was a it was an old Ford uh, pickup truck with a floor shift, and you had to hold the the shift in, or it would pop into neutral. You just so we went all the way to Washington, and 
I had to go in the back door because I was in flight gear and they didn't want me to go in the front door because there's press out there and they'd wonder that would look funny. And I got there and they took me in and there were four officers sitting around a table with a big map of Cuba and they started asking me what we could do and I and there was a door to the next room, and every so often an officer stick his head in and ask a question. And all I could see in there was a big table with officers around, and I found out later that's what they called the tank. That was the Joint Chiefs, and LeMay was the only one I recognized that I could see. And I figured this is getting serious. So we went round and round. The, the interesting thing is there was never any mention of missiles. It was construction. I figured they were talking about a U-2. We knew U-2s were flying over Cuba, so I'd figure that much out. Could we do this? We Could we do that? They were very interested whether we need aerial tanking to fly, and would we be better off flying out of Jacksonville with a station, with a squadron station? At that time, I was attached to a light photographic reconnaissance squadron 62, which we normally operated off a carrier. And I said, well, it would be better to go out of Key West to cut four or 500 miles out of the mission. Well, they thought that was fine. And the next thing I knew, they gave me a, a folder sealed and to get back down to give it to my commanding officer. I had a little problem getting out because they wanted me to evacuate my airplane to, to Memphis. And I didn't want to go to Memphis. I wanted to go to Jacksonville. And so finally uh, they told me that I, I had to go to Memphis, and that was an order. So I said, okay, and I got in my plane, and that's another story we won't get involved in here, but it was kind of tricky getting somebody to help me start it because they were all manning other airplanes, and it was, a, it was a chaos, actually. Because everyone knows how urgent this situation is? Yeah, because they, they thought they were flying away for this hurricane. And, and of course, no one that flew those air they were every different office in the Navy in the Washington area. There wasn't one squadron or air group you could contact to get the pilots in. And this was and most of the airplanes needed two. It was quite an exercise they were going through for the first time. So as a, when I took off they thought I was going to Memphis and I didn't. I went to Jacksonville. I created a little problem later. <laughs> so you you disobeyed the order? Yes. My CO, the XO, met me, and they I gave them their envelope. That was about 1 o'clock in the morning, I guess. And they said, go home and get a good night's rest and come back. Well, anyway, the next day we came back, and we were, we were assigned pilots. I was, there were going to be six of us, three flights of two. And I was going to lead one flight, the commanding officer going to another one, and there was another lieutenant commander there is leading the third group. The CO had the choice. His mission was just outside of Havana. And so we had our missions, and we, and all we had was uh, a map with various locations just circled and latitude, longitude written down. There's nothing to indicate. And I'd already asked them you know, when I was in Washington, what were, what were we looking for? And they said, unusual military activity or construction. That's all we knew. So the next day, that was about the 21st, we flew down to Key West while everybody else flew to Memphis and other places, and we just went the other direction. And so that gave us a good cover. The plan was just to land and gas up and go. 
Well, we got there and they told us to hold. Okay, so we held the whole next day, and then they actually the next morning we we went out and we were man sitting in the planes ready to go, and then they told us to stand down, which was just as well. You, you don't want to sit in an airplane in Key West in in, in October any longer than you have to. <laughs> So they brought in a whole squadron of F-104s from George Air Force Base, which was down by uh, Los Angeles. And uh, I think they had to tank three or four times to get down there, and they made it. They were going to be our escort. They weren't go to go over land. They were stay off the coast. So the next morning we got ready, and this time we were just sitting in the ready room. We weren't going to go out and sit in those airplanes. In a hurricane? Yeah. And uh, by this time, the hurricane had really filled out. It had never even went anyplace. But they said go. So on the 23rd, the morning, about 10 o'clock in the morning, we took off. I had three targets. One was a, a missile, constru- as it turned out, it was a missile base uh, near Sagra La Grande, which is about 100 miles east of uh, Havana, and then there was a Santa Clara, I believe, was a their jet MIG base, and they wanted to see what they was going on there. And then there was another suspicious area up by Remedios, which is a pretty good sized town along the north coast. So they knew they were going, but how would they pull it off, and how would it all unfold? Perhaps the bigger question is, what might have happened if they didn't? Head over to hometownheroesradio.com or the Hometown Heroes Facebook page for a video with Tad Riley and photos relating to his story. We'll be right back after this. When times get tough and budgets get tight, a lot of businesses start slashing their marketing budgets, which all too often turns into a costly mistake. Instead, what if you could customize that investment to zero in on your target audience with surgical precision? And why am I saying what if? Because I already know you can with search strategy marketing. It's not about how much you spend, it's about the strategy behind it. And Search Strategy Marketing is ready to prove it to you with a free, no-obligation assessment of your current efforts. Learn how to outrank your competition with a free, customized action plan just for Hometown Heroes listeners. Just go to hometownheroesradio.com and click on that light bulb logo for Search Strategy Marketing. It doesn't matter what your business is, Search Strategy Marketing can lead you to the best way to connect with your customers. So look for that light bulb logo today at hometownheroesradio.com and plug into the power that can take your business to the next level. When prices start going up, we all look for ways to save. So here's a simple message for you. Look no further than EECU. Did you know you can finance your mortgage through EECU? How about a home equity line of credit? EECU makes HELOC loans easy. And when the car business is all over the map, the auto loan rates are as steady as can be. EECU is a not-for-profit credit union, not a bank. So the members always win. Go to myeecu.org to become a member today or call one 800 53 Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler, brought to you by this local station and its sponsors, and presented everywhere, on the air and online, by Provident Payments, one of the fastest-growing payment consultants in America. Connect today at ProvidentPayments.com. 
Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and our conversation with Navy pilot Tad Riley, now 94 years old. But in the photo he and I are looking at, he was only 32, standing in front of a row of RF-8 Crusaders about 10 or 15 yards from the Commander-in-Chief, the President of the United States. You can find this photo at hometownheroesradio.com or the Hometown Heroes Facebook page, but I'll have Tad explain it for us. Uh, this is a picture of President Kennedy who awarded... Uh, Light Photographic Squadron 62, the Navy unit citation for their operations during the missile crisis. It's the first time that the Navy unit citation was ever given in peacetime, and it was the first time, at least so far, that I know of, that the president personally awarded it. That makes it pretty special. It was at the time, yes. <laughs> he came to see us. He didn't come to see anybody else. Did you get to shake his hand? No. He got in his car, and US-1 was just down the street. Uh-huh. And your distinguished flying cross citation doesn't say anything about what you did. Why not? Well, it was all classified, and they, they wanted to reward us, but they couldn't admit it. But all these decades later, it's not all classified. So you can tell us this story of the important photographs you snapped over those targets that you told us about earlier in Cuba in October 1962. Everything was uh, no radios. We're... All light signals when we all t- we took off all together and headed off on our way and we we were uh, stay under 500 feet so we wouldn't track their missiles go as fast as we wanted to. Well, at that time we only thought the uh, Cubans had MiG 17s, which is which is a good airplane, but it, it was no match for us. We could cruise faster than they could dive practically. So we were humming along about six. 100 miles an hour to 100 feet, and there was a factory along the coast. When you're going to fly low level over land at high speeds, you got to know where you started. That whole north coast is just nothing but white beaches. But then on the map, I showed there was a one mark there that showed there was a high point, so I figured that must be something. And it turned out it was an old factory, probably an old rum factory. And that was my starting point. And from then on, it was, we didn't have any GPSs and things like that in those days. It, it was a compass and a sweep second hand. And you knew how fast you were going, five miles a minute or whatever it was. And we had it off. And sure, the first thing that I knew, we flew right over surface air missile site. It was Russian. And that they have a control van with six rockets around it and when I went by most of the boys were up on top of the van sunbathing and the rest of them were playing volleyball and so I knew we're okay today they don't know we're coming <laughs> I mean now you could kind of take a deep that told me we didn't have to worry about their defensive systems because they were still playing volleyball but, but I just waved my wings and, and kept on going. And I had my number two man was right in back of me. when we were, And we were radio silence until we were over land. Then we could talk to each other. But we kept going. And about the next thing, uh, I was getting close to where I was supposed to find something. And I saw piles of look big, big uh, fence posts piled up. Was what they were doing was building a security fence around their missile site. But they were big, white, it must have been uh, cast concrete posts. And that looked suspicious because Cuba was really third world. Very few of the roads were paved, and then they were just dirt. There were no, the highest thing were the palm trees and steeples. There were no 
telephone lines, no power lines, so we didn't have to worry about that that we'd, we would have had in the States, for instance. You'd be worried about power lines. And so we were just humming along. About 300 feet was about as low as you, you could still navigate, see what was ahead. And so sure enough, there were over the, to the side there were a bunch of bulldozers and there was a lot of dirt and they were digging. And we took the picture that you've got there and went made a run. And there were some t uh, very long skinny tents. That's where they stored. They had the missiles there. And as I went by, one of them, the nose was sticking out and these were the big ones. These are the ones you see on, on the newsreels and May Day parades that they drag you. I mean, they were 85 feet long. They were, these were the big ones. I found out afterwards they could have gotten to Seattle. And then I took those pictures and went up to the air base and I made a pass down their runway. And they have about 90, a whole bunch of airplanes, but they're, they're all, they had no hangars. It was just a big long runway and parking ramps. And all the airplanes had canvas-fitted covers. So I never saw an airplane. I just saw the—you couldn't see what kind they were, but they were obviously swept-wing fighters, about 90 of them, they said later when they counted them. And then I went up to Remedios, and that base was more in the forest, a bunch of palm trees and stuff. It didn't stand out in the open like the first one. They had just started, I think. As it turned out, there but that was, those were intermediate or small missiles. They could get to Washington, but uh, maybe as far as St. Louis. But they weren't nearly as as uh, in progress. And that was really what they. I don't think Washington. They they didn't. They had evidence of a lot of stuff going on, and they couldn't figure out what it possibly. They couldn't, I don't think they believed they would try to put these big missiles in there. I just don't think they believed it. But that's my personal opinion. Sure. And uh, they had really, that was a major effort for what the Russians is. It's pretty amazing that they got all that. All, everything they needed was there, and they were going to throw it together in a hurry. Well, they got caught. So when we came back, well, of course, uh, we landed at Navy Jacksonville, that's where our big uh, photo lab was, and they grabbed the film and developed it and then put it on a bomber and took it up to Washington, I guess, or the UN. Mm -hmm. That's where it ended up. Uh, we didn't fly the next day because they were still processing the film, and the interpreters were figuring out what they had. So then uh, the next day, that was... The 20, about Saturday, and things were really humming, and uh, the Russians had finally said they were going to back out and leave. So it came along with what they later called, or we found out they called it Black Saturday. That was the next morning, and we flew the same mission. And I could uh, see things were different. They they, just, they weren't, they looked like they were loading. And uh, the reason I'm mentioning this that night, I was at home again. This is a good war because I stayed at home for. <laughs> <laughs> and the phone rang, and someone told me they, they obviously knew I was Red Five. We may we could use our own call signs. I was Red Red Y, Red Two, I guess. Somebody else was White, and Red, White, and Blue, and that's the way. 
And uh, this guy on the phone obviously was in on it, so I could talk to him. And he said, we hold the line, we want to transfer this phone. The next thing I heard was the White House. And the next voice was a distinctly Boston, New England <laughs> voice. He didn't identify himself, but he said, did they look like they, they were leaving? And I said, it looked like they were loading trucks. And he says, thank God. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to stick with my story, but I'm pretty sure that was Bobby Kennedy. It was a very distinct Boston accent. I've spent a lot of time in New England. You, they, they have, they, they're all a little different. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that pretty much uh, after that, we flew missions for a while. We were because we we could count the missiles. They were all out in the open. That, that one base I had. We knew how many they had, and so we were tracking them as they drug them down to Cienfiego to load them to go home. And they could only, they were 80, the whole rig was 85 feet long. And you're going down through little, I don't know how they got them there in the first place, <laughs> but they could only go about 10, 50 miles a day. They could only go about 10 miles an hour, this big thing. And they'd camp and uh, get up in the morning and load up and go again. So we knew about how far they'd gone. So we were tracking each missile that we knew they had. We could keep track of it, make sure they took them out. And that, pretty after that, it was kind of winding down, just watching them. And so that was your microscopic view of what's happening. But if we zoom out, the world is waiting to see. I mean, are, are we going to have nuclear war with the USSR? Are they really going to attack us? What's going on? And you ended up seeing one of those photos you had taken being held up at the UN on television? Yes. That, that, the one that ended up in the, on the cover. Well, it ended up in several magazines and so forth because it was it really showed more than some of the others. There, Some of the other pictures, you just saw trucks out in the woods and Obviously, they've been making uh, launch pads and so forth, but it, 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 that picture kind of tied it all together. And I'll put this picture online at hometownheroesradio.com, but as I understand, you got home from one of your flights, and you, you go back home in Jacksonville where your wife is waiting for you, and, and she's got Adelaide Stevenson on the TV talking about this? They started showing pictures, and one of them was this, this picture which I had taken about four hours earlier. <laughs> so what did she say? Well, she was surprised, of course. I don't remember. We were, I was just glad to be there. <laughs> I had been gone a couple of days, and the kids wanted to know what's going on. <laughs> it was just another, just another day. Well, and, and I'm guessing because of the secret nature of all this, you couldn't confirm nor deny that you had taken any of those. They wanted to keep quiet who the pilots were because there was always the... the possibility of retaliation and families and that sort of thing. So we didn't want our names broadcast. You think your wife knew that that was some of your work? I, she must have. She, she knows everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, I'm just curious, because it's been 60 years since this happened, almost 62 it'll be this year. Have you ever thought what might have been different? If you guys weren't there to take those photos when you took them? Uh, I, I personally think we came a lot closer than they've ever even admitted. Because, uh, you know, 
if you're the guy down at the bottom and you see something happen and maybe you don't think you're quite ready, you make sure you are ready. And there were people, there were little ex, little activities going on that you never saw before. Yeah, and we talk so much about the things that happened, but not so much about the things that came really close to happening. So what I hear you saying is we were probably a lot more to global nuclear conflict than any of us have ever really imagined? Well, it wouldn't have been us. It would have been them. They were helpless, and they knew it, and we outgunned them. Now, I understand, too, on one of these flights down in that neck of the woods, you got a little surprise from some MiGs that you didn't know were there? Yeah, uh, it, it was while we were doing this uh, uh, road reconnaissance tracking the missiles. The the pressure was off at that point. It was kind of loose, and we were flying a little higher because it was hard to see these this equipment down in the in the woods if you were too low. And uh, my wingman called out. There were two MiGs uh, making a run on us. And we looked, and I looked up, and they were they were MiG 21s. At that time, none of the satellites had MiG 21s. That was the the number one airplane around Moscow. The satellites had MiG 19s, which was about like F 100. It was a, it was capable of going supersonic, but it wasn't. But the MiG 21 was comparable to what I was flying. And it might have made a difference if we had known. We might have done things a little different if we'd known they had MiG 21s. <laughs> and not only that, they weren't. I, I don't know. Maybe I was naive, but I just assumed if we saw a MiG, it would be a Cuban. But these were obviously Russian pilots. They weren't Cubans. And that, that's a that's a different that's a different ball game. So it was two of your F8s with two MiG 21s on your tail. Yeah, one as we well after the the Soviet Union. Union collapse. Uh, they they got they got some of the pilots' uh, flight reports, and it was the commanding officer. And I don't remember. It was a Colonel Bumboff or something like that, and uh, he was uh, leading a student, just checking out in a MiG twenty one, and so after the first pass, we countered, and I never saw the second guy again. Uh, he, whether he just got lost or what. The colonel kept with us, but uh, we got down. We were going supersonic, and we were in the trees. Some of those palm trees are about 100 feet high, and so we could get— I figured if he'd chase us through the woods, be my guest, because I was having enough trouble just missing him, much less trying to shoot at somebody. And uh, he chased us probably 20 or 30 miles, and then— he was just told to scare us away. Well, he did. <laughs> and maybe that answers a little of my question, but, I mean, I don't know what your rules of engagement were, but, I mean, that, that sounds like a pretty hairy situation. Well, we, we were on that. We, had, we didn't have any guns or anything. We only had cameras. Mm -hmm. So about the only thing we could do is use tactics. And uh, at that time, I knew we had trouble with our sidewinders and r rocket heat-seeking, looking down at a moving target. They couldn't lock onto it. It would be too much stuff. And, and to clarify, so you're saying your plane had no defenses, but you knew that the American versions of those kind of heat-seeking missiles were not entirely accurate, so you're thinking maybe theirs aren't either? I figured they, they had the same problems of, that we did. And so I figured if we got down low and went as fast as we could, that part worked. I don't think he could have uh, 
gotten to us anyway, but it was a, it was a rough flight because you get down low like that and you hurt, it's, it's hot down there and you have shadows and so forth and plowed fields and green fields and so you get a little thermals, little thermals of rising hot air. And and, and when you, the way we were going is like running across a whole bunch of railroad tracks with flat tires. I mean, I couldn't even read the instruments. It was just bouncing around. I was So we, we got up about Mach 1.2, and that's all I wanted to go. I was afraid the airplane would come apart. Well, much less you, you might hit a tree or something else, huh? Well... You you could dodge them, you could see, <laughs> but I mean I actually, well one time, we were going along down a, a, across a valley, and up ahead was a a ridge maybe fifteen or twenty feet, with palm trees along the top, and there was a break in the in they weren't solid there was an opening and I kind of looked at it and figured out I could go between I wouldn't have to go up over it, and so as I got there. There were two Mexicans wearing sombreros. One was sitting on a mule, and the other guy was standing there. I'll say he was talking to his friend, but I'm not sure that's exactly what he was doing. Well, we went by him, probably 15 or 20 feet, supersonic. And I imagine that mule's still out there twitching someplace. <laughs> that could actually do a job on your eardrums. Yeah. So I don't know, they, 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 and neither one of them saw me coming, and they couldn't hear me, of course. So I often wondered what the results of that, because I was just as far as across the room from them. And again, I'm just uh, trying to relate this and, and put myself in your shoes. So you have this incident with the MiGs where you don't know how that's going to end up. If you're going to get away, if they're going to shoot you down, you can't shoot back. And then... You get back home and you see your wife, and again, you can't tell her anything about that, right? By that time, it was pretty open. Yeah. 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 We were talking about it. I mean, there's no way too many people knew about it by then. Can you describe the adrenaline or the emotion that you feel in a circumstance like that? Well, you just kind of feel relieved. I mean, you 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 got got away with that one. You wonder what the next one's going to be. <laughs> well, and I guess I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask if if there are some other next ones that you wanted to share with us. I don't think so. It was very that was the most exciting time of my life, and it's been dull ever since. I retired from the Navy in '72, and then I retired from the city in '92, and and I and I haven't had. A decent job since. That's the city of San Diego, a proud Navy town, of course, as well. But uh, I'm just curious, during those, the early years of Vietnam, were you flying somewhere? Because I'd had duty in Washington, and they put a restriction on me, what they call a risk of capture. So I had a two-year restriction that I, I couldn't go near it, which didn't break my heart. And for those who wouldn't understand that risk of capture, what does that mean? Well, uh, I knew too much. I can probably talk about all of it now, but uh, at the time they 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 wouldn't let people with, like me uh, go where we could be shot down or captured. Because you were privy to too much classified information. Yes. One thing I don't want to forget to say is thank you. Thank you for serving our country and for telling us a story that I know nobody else could tell us. When you think back of all your years flying in the Navy, is there something you would say you're most proud of? <laughs> I guess I'm alive. <laughs> No, I. It was a job. 
like anything else. You, you kind of took it for granted. It was a lot of fun. There was something new going on all the time. You got to travel a lot, so I never regretted it. Here's a fun one for you. You've got models of a lot of the different aircraft you flew here, but is there a plane that you never got to fly that you'd really like to fly or at least go up in? Yeah, I would like to have flown an F-8 or a Corsair. And uh, at one time, they were available. You could do it. I just never got around to it. And the next thing you knew, they're not there anymore. But I wouldn't like to have flown them. So if one of those Corsairs that's still flying, like the, the Planes of Fame or something, if, if they uh, cracked open the canopy for you, you'd climb in and give it a whirl? No. No. I wouldn't even know how to start it anymore. <laughs> what if they had a two-seater? Oh, I, I always was in one-seater. I didn't want to witness because sometimes you screw up, you know, and it's bad enough you knew, but you don't want any of <laughs> And am I hearing, too, that you'd rather be the one at the controls than a passenger? Oh, yeah. It's a long time before I take a nap on an airliner. Every time they adjusted anything, I heard it, felt it, and wondered why. <laughs> uh-huh. So one more question for you. So you're 94 years young now. You've got a lot of life to look back on. When you take stock of all of it now, is there something that you'd say you're most thankful for? Good health. Yeah, as long as you're healthy and have somebody to share it, that's all you need. And is there something, you know, some people, I I interview a lot of these World War II guys, and they always talk about how even World War II isn't taught enough in schools, and, and young people might not understand the price that's been paid for our freedom. The Cuban Missile Crisis gets even less airtime, so to speak. Is there something you think the rest of us ought to know about that time period in our history that you ended up with such a unique role in? There's a lot of time spent on innocuous things now. I don't know exactly how to, can't think of it, but what you see on the TV now we don't need. (laughs) It's just, who who could care? I mean, get a life. (laughs) Well, so, so how would you explain the significance of that week in October of 1962 and and what you did and what the world learned. Well, it could have been a big, it could have been World War III, real easy. And uh, when I look back, somewhere along the line, some people could have made a snap decision and, and started something that they didn't anticipate. And that's some of the stuff that's going on now. I don't think uh, they, they really realize they think they have all the answers, and they don't. They're not smart enough to know they don't know. They think they know. Words of caution from Tad Riley, 94-year-old retired Navy pilot. Again, if you want to explore more of Tad's story with photos and a short video, you can find all of that at hometownheroesradio.com or the Hometown Heroes page on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm Paul Leffler reminding you again that freedom is not free. To let Paul know about a veteran in your life, visit HometownHeroesRadio.com and click on Suggest a Veteran. Today's program has been brought to you by Provident Payments. Give your business the edge only their personalized service can deliver at ProvidentPayments.com.